Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each week to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you, Stacey, and good evening, and Shana uh, Tova to all those who celebrated. Um, I want to start a little bit with noting the Jewish festivals, because when uh, these elections were first called, the first thing that most noted was that uh, a big part of the campaign season, the sort of uh, lead up with, you know, usually uh, the most intense period of campaign will actually be slap bang in the middle of the Jewish holidays. And so far we already had Rosh Hashanah um, earlier in the week, uh, Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday. And in Israel, even amongst those who are not necessarily religious or observant, it is, they are days off, they are days where you spend with the family, they are maybe even days where you go to the beach or go to, you know, uh, to the national parks or something like that. Uh, but the fact is, this period, next week we'll have Yom Kippur, the week after we'll have the first part of Sukkot, uh, and then uh, the intermediate days, and then the second part of Sukkot, and then really we only have two weeks, pretty much, until elections. So there was that feeling that this would be a relatively different uh, campaign season election uh, period and it's proving to a certain extent to be true so much so that one of the biggest um, political commentators today who has a telegram channel which is busy night and day every five minutes posting something has posted very little in the last few days um, and uh, his name's Amit Segal for those uh, for those who know him and he even said he was so bored today uh, he started looking at irrelevant statistics from previous elections. He had nothing new to say um, because it's really been uh, quite a slow uh, period uh, in the last week or so with everyone sort of getting in the mood for Shoshanah. And now it's the lead up to Yom Kippur. Uh, these holidays, sometimes they're at the weekends. You don't, you don't really miss the working week. Uh, this year, we actually have all the Jewish holidays right in the middle of the week. So we're going to be missing more and more time. Um, so a lot more people are not at work, not at their computers, and are not really focused on things apart from their family and vacation, uh, pretty much. So um, that, that's the first thing that really needs to be said at this period. What we did have last week is we did have a very interesting speech at the UN. We touched on it last week, but uh, the speech was actually given um, by Prime Minister, Interim Prime Minister, if you like, Yael Lapid, at the United Nations uh, on Thursday, where he did talk about uh, what had been released the, the night before, and that's why we were able to touch on it, the fact that he would be endorsing a two-states-for-two-people solution uh, during his speech. Now, in years gone by, there wouldn't necessarily have been such an exciting or unique uh, element. Many Prime Ministers mentioned it, many Prime Minister's promoted it, but it certainly hasn't been something that has been talked about much in Israeli politics uh, in recent years, primarily because there's a belief amongst Israelis there simply is no partner uh, on the other side. Uh, and especially that's borne out by the violence that we're seeing emanating, emanating 
uh, pretty much every day from major Palestinian uh, cities. The most controversial thing that was said about this is not necessarily an endorsement by a left of center leader of uh, pretty much uh, you know that that sort of a policy is the fact that Yale appeared said that this is a position supported by the majority of Israelis. Um, if he would have made that comment maybe 10 years ago, maybe a bit more, he would have been undoubtedly correct. But we've seen over the last number of years a real waning of support. Um, it is my firm belief that if there was a partner on the other side, if there was a deal, if there was a feeling that peace is around the corner, a majority of Israelis probably would sign on to a two states for two people. And that second part is just as important as the first, because uh, the Palestinians always talk about two states, but never about two states for two people. So it's very important when an Israeli leader uses the whole uh, phraseology. Uh, it, it's very important. And I can respond to any questions on that, the importance of that, because that's something that I dealt with um, when I was in the Israeli government. But the statement that, um, that most Israelis are supportive of two states for two people solution was not borne out by any poll that I've seen in recent years. It's not a strong uh, plurality against, but certainly there is no majority for it, simply because there is no belief that it can happen, simply because there's no eagerness for it, um, and it really hasn't been on the agenda. So here was Yelapid's attempt to sort of, um, you know, sort of state a claim for why to vote for Yeshatid. Uh, they were probably the first party on the political map to make a significant statement on the what's called the political process, the Israeli-Palestinian, you know, quote-unquote peace process. Um, but as one can imagine, he got support from the left, some saying on the far left, well, it's very nice to say that, but we need more than words. As one can imagine on the right, he got slammed for it. Interestingly, uh, the Likud came out and, you know, all sorts of attacks. He shouldn't have said such a thing. You can't support a two-states for two uh, people. And to say at the UN was ridiculous and, and everything else. Uh, Yeshatid's response was to show a speech by Prime Minister Netanyahu not a couple of years ago, I can't remember exactly, three, four years ago, where he actually said pretty much uh, the same thing. Um, so as I said, it, it's it's usually rhetoric. The fact that Lapid brought it up at this point is probably to try and differentiate himself. Um, what it did do is it certainly made it more uh, uncomfortable for his uh, closest competitor, which is Benny Gantz of the National Unity Party. The reason it made it uncomfortable for him is because, as we've said in the past, his party is an amalgamation um, of political views. Some centre-left within his party, and Gadi Eisenkot, the former IDF um, uh, uh, chief of staff, who is definitely on the left on those issues and stated his support for a two-state solution relatively recently and even I think attacked uh, settlements, uh, et cetera, or Israel's um, policies in Judea and Samaria. On, on the right of the party and a major player, number two on the list is Gidon Saar, who makes up uh, a third to a half of the initial 10 candidates. And his party is vehemently, or at least the majority of um, his candidates are vehemently against the two-state solution. So what we did hear from Benny Gantz who gave quite a few interviews um, uh, subsequent to, uh, to Prime Minister Lapid's speech, sort of had to find that middle ground where he wouldn't annoy either of his partners. So he talked about a two, um, a, a, a two entities, which is usually used by people who don't want to say the word states, but it's a sort of a wink and a nod to those 
who are supportive. Um, again, that was probably something that was worked out as a compromise between his uh, differing parts. And, and it just, Lapid probably realizes at this point, this is good to push them on the back uh, feet, uh, foot and try and differentiate uh, these two center, center left parties, one from the other. Where it certainly was uh, greeted, let's say, to a certain extent, was by the Labour Party. Mirav Michaeli uh, of the Labour Party, which was the historic left uh, wing party, left of center party, uh, which was the ruling party for just shy of three decades, um, uh, has been looking for something to, to get their hands on to, again, try and grow their support because they are battling not just with Lapid and Gantz on their so-called right, but merits on their left. Uh, according to the most recent poll, they're down to five, I think it was, five seats. So they're really struggling. Um, but certainly the issue of the Palestinians uh, buoyed them a little bit to the point where, and this is certainly going to be uh, an, an interesting move, they decided to hold a rally on the anniversary of the assassination of former Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. It's usually held on, I believe, October 29th. Um, usually it's held in Kikar Rabin, Rabin Square, where he was assassinated in Tel Aviv. But this year they're going to hold it in uh, um, Kikati on Zion Square uh, in Jerusalem. Now, why is that significant? Because first of all, it's taking that message into the heart of right-wing Israel, which is Jerusalem. And also their point is that this is where the incitement uh, that led to Rabin, this is their point of view, this is uh, where the incitement, there, was, there were famous images of people shouting death to Rabin and all sorts of things um, in a rally in Zion Square. And even there's pictures of um, then head of opposition, uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, um, sort of egging on the supporters. There's been some dishonest splicing of videos to show, to try and show that Netanyahu himself was egging on the death to Rabin. There's no proof that he heard those particular chants and he was just egging on the supporters, which was a right-wing um, demonstration. But the fact that this will take place two days before the election certainly is going to probably buoy either camp. There may even be, I don't know if violence will happen, but there will certainly be some heated exchanges on the streets of Jerusalem. So certainly the issue of uh, Rabin, his legacy, Oslo, the Palestinians, is coming back to the forefront a little bit. It hasn't grabbed as much attention as perhaps some would like, uh, those who are seeking some sort of uh, two-state solution. Um, but um, it is there, and it has returned for the first time, I would argue, in at least half a dozen elections. Uh, it hasn't been an issue. But the fact is, it's become an issue also because of the violence that's emanating from Judea and Samaria, from the Palestinian Authority towns. Israel, uh, in Operation Break the Wave, has been in the towns and cities um, of Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, pretty much day after day, night after night. There was a big operation today. They took out a, a small cell which was planning attacks. Apparently, there's another cell. But Israel, Israeli forces are there pretty much every day, you know, putting their lives on the line to try and stop these cells with these different armed groups, sometimes lone, uh, lone wolves, as they talk, uh, call them, trying to perpetrate um, uh, attacks left, right and centre. So the security issue is there. It's a bit of a difficult one because Netanyahu likes to be known as Mr. Security. Uh, you know, he can't really attack this government for, for lack of, you know, of, of, of doing uh, what's necessary inside these uh, terrorist 
operation centers because quite simply he didn't do anything close to what's being done now uh, on the streets of Jenin, Nablus, uh, Shrem, uh, and, and other places. Um, so it's a bit of a difficult one for him, and he's certainly uh, not playing up those security credentials as much as he would have if he would have been leaving, leading these uh, operations. And with the success rate that, uh, that they're finding with the arrests, with the, with the neutralizing, as they call it, of uh, terrorist night uh, after night. The interesting thing is we had our first poll. You know, Israelis are addicted to polls, so they build this as the first one of the new year. And the interest, the most that was a couple of interesting tidbits that came out of this poll that was released tonight. First of all, that um, after quite a few successive polls, which showed that um, the right-wing religious bloc led by uh, former Prime Minister Netanyahu had been getting 60, 61, 62 uh, for the first time in at least a few weeks. Uh, his block actually went down to 59. Interestingly enough, the two seats which appeared to be lost were from the Likud party. Now, again, who knows? I mean, you know, when they do these polls, it's a few hundred people. Uh, sometimes they twist them a little bit to get a headline. Sometimes if one or two people uh, that they approach go for another party, then it just changes the whole complexion. Uh, so I wouldn't uh, read too much into it, but perhaps there is something to read. Again, we'll see what the trend is. But another interesting um, uh, thing to note about it is that what people are saying could happen if Bibi doesn't get his uh, 61 is that he could reach across the aisle uh, to Benny Gantz. Now, Benny Gantz's price for entering the government could be very high, especially if Netanyahu is desperate and needs him. And um, one of them would be that uh, he would come in without the religious Zionist party, Vital Smotrich, who he, he has claimed that he wants to form a government without the extremes. He talks about Ballad and the joint list on the left uh, and uh, the religious Zionists on the right. But according to this poll, uh, with uh, Benny Gantz getting 13 and the religious Zionist party on 12, uh, even if that scenario were to happen, uh, a Bibi or a Gantz-led right-wing religious coalition still would not get 60. So uh, according to this poll and according to the commentators who introduced it, they wouldn't be surprised if we we're already uh, starting to think about another date in April for the next round of elections. I think it's a little bit too early to say. Again, we'll have to see what the trends are. If this continues to be a trend in Likud and uh, the Likud-run bloc, do weaken significantly in the polls ahead? then perhaps that is something, but we've still got a bit of time to go. Finally, there was a little bit of drama uh, that came out of Israeli politics tonight when uh, Amichai Shikli, the former renegade Yamina MK, who basically voted against the government and uh, did the formation of the government and the government all the way through and was given a reserved spot on the Likud list. He was sort of got pride of place on uh, Likud, on Netanyahu's reserved spots on Likud has been um, uh, ruled as not eligible to run by the elections committee. Um, the excuse was given that uh, there was a deal that was made that Shikli would resign from the Knesset and then he'd be able to run with an existing party in the next Knesset, but he didn't resign in time. Uh, this will be taken to the Supreme Court. The likelihood is I would suggest uh, is that he will be uh, allowed to run, um, but certainly it was quite a shock to see that, especially when Edith Silman, who was a another renegade, Yamina MK, who was the one pretty much to bring down the government, uh, came at a much later stage and had voted with the government for best part of a year, was ruled eligible to run. So I think the likelihood is at the end of the day that both of them will be able to run. 
um, but um, one never knows. So there was a little bit of drama after a relatively quiet few days. So with that, I'm happy to answer any questions about these issues or anything else that's on your mind. All right, thank you so much. We have a few questions coming in. Larry, we've talked about this before, but Larry would like to know, would Likud win to form a government if Netanyahu were to step aside as head of the party? Likud, I mean, that, that's the problem with saying a party or a person wins Israeli elections. It doesn't work as cleanly as, it's not like in, in the US uh, elections where, you know, one party wins or a leader wins. There, there's no real winning on the night of elections because no party has ever in the history of the state got 61 votes. So let's put that aside. Um, what has usually happened, at least up until last year, was that Netanyahu got enough uh, to form a coalition. Uh, ever since 2009, I think it was, uh, up until last year, he did enough to form a coalition, whether his natural block or reaching across the aisle, he always managed to, to form a coalition. Um, so at the moment, Netanyahu run could would certainly be the strongest party by far, uh, even according to the latest party, there are at least eight to 10 seats ahead of their biggest rivals, which is Yeshatid. Um, so there's very little likely, uh, likelihood that Likud will not be the largest party come election day with, with Netanyahu at the helm. What would happen if Netanyahu were to step aside is it would probably make it more easy for Likud to form a government. Why? Because there are quite a few, even in this current government, who are right wing, who are, you know, politically, ideologically natural allies of the Likud and the right wing religious bloc, but they will not sit in a government with Netanyahu because of personal ideological uh, differences with Netanyahu. Some say he's turned to the left, some say it's all about him, some say he's a danger to the country because of various reasons. Um, so if Netanyahu were to leave, then people like Saar, uh, maybe Lieberman, um, some others would probably uh, be able to return to the Likud, or if not, the right-wing religious uh, bloc. So probably it would be easier to form a government without Netanyahu, but they could would certainly do better. The, the problem is, is um, for those who, who who want to see that, is it's very hard to get him out. Um, the Likud bylaws internally uh, make it very difficult. He, he holds on to most of the choice uh, committees uh, within the Likud. There is no obvious candidate to take over. There's a few quite low down as far as polls are concerned, uh, and even they can't agree on one particular challenger. The, the one challenger who came out uh, in the past was dropped down the list, so it shows that if you come against Netanyahu, you're going to suffer in the Likud. So at the moment, it's not a relevant question. Um, it will probably make it easier for Likud to form a coalition without Netanyahu, but he's not going anywhere. So at the moment, all their bets are on Netanyahu. If he's not able to form a government this time, they say that the knives will be out and there'll be people who will turn on him, but we've heard some of these things before. Obviously, at some point, it has to get louder and it has to get more aggressive uh, to try and put him aside. And as I've said before, my particular belief is that uh, uh, if anyone is going to depose Netanyahu, it will come from the uh, Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox party, uh, someone like uh, Moshe Gaffney. Um, so... It's a long way of uh, saying it's not relevant at the moment, um, but it will probably be easier without letting you know to form a government. 
Thank you. Michael Kerbel asked, do you believe that the Arab party will be part of the next government? And uh, following up on that, did any of the Arab parties give a public statement on the UN speech? Well, first of all, there are two Arab parties running these elections. Actually, there's three. Uh, only two are expected to pass the electoral threshold. Um, you know, before there were four parties and Ram uh, broke off from the joint list and now Balad have broken off from the joint list and they're not expected to pass. Interestingly enough, the two Arab parties left in are, are on four, according to the latest poll, um, which, you know, is very close to the electoral th threshold themselves. Um, everything will depend on the mood of the Arab street on the day of elections. Do they feel motivated? Do they feel that their vote will make effect to any change? To, you know, th th there's a lot of different processes happening in the Arab street. Some want to become more integrated and are happy with what Iran brought to the table and trying to be part of a government. Others are, well, look, their efforts failed. We, you know, nothing really changed for us. So we have to uh, return to more extremist parties. Um, at the moment, Ram could certainly be part of a Gantz or Lapid-led government. Uh, they could have ruled it out, but we know they've negotiated with Ram in the past, but it was vetoed by Vitalos Mutrich, who they will certainly need after election. Vitalos Mutrich, according to polls, brings 12, whereas Ram only brings four. So there is a major, major difference there. It's not like Gantz, which is only one difference. Um, as far as the joint list, that was... The most interesting thing to come out of a wave of interviews that Prime Minister Lapid gave to all the Israeli papers ahead of the uh, Jewish New Year, that was a question that was asked by every single interviewer. Can you imagine a government either with the joint list inside or at least reliant on them? And he was mostly evasive. Um, his argument was, well, they also said that they won't be part of a government, so it's irrelevant, or until the results are known, I can't ask uh, uh, hypothetical questions. In one, he got closer to saying no. It, it's a difficult one for him, because on the one hand, he may need them. Um, on the other hand, he doesn't want to say he needs them at this stage, because that could uh, intensify the Nikud attacks on him that he basically needs to be reliant on anti-Zionists. Uh, Arab parties. Um, so I, it, it, the, at the moment, a left of center government run by Lapid, although according to the poll tonight, including all the parties currently in the government, was on 57, not a million miles away from the 61, and probably the closest they've been. Still, without the joint list, they have no chance of getting over that 61. So Lapid can't really rule it out at this point because that may be his only chance. Uh, to return to the premiership. Um, as far as reactions to the Lapid speech, um, I think, I don't think Ram said anything, at least I didn't read anything. And the joint list, uh, basically, I, to the best of my knowledge, called it cynical. And if he really cared about it, he would actually do something about it. Uh, but again, it, it, it wasn't, the reaction wasn't as big as many would have hoped, even in Yeshatid, to sort of rebound uh, uh, upon and make it an issue. Um, so I don't, the, the most obvious ones were the religious Zionists and then they could, and then you had Mir uh, Micheli and Zabagalon of the left-wing merits, uh, Labour merits parties respectively. Thank you. Christoph uh, Gastenschmidt asks, what is the sense of a two-state solution now, especially as it has not been implemented ever since it came on the table? Well, if it had been implemented, it wouldn't need to be raised again. Um, I mean, it's it's 
as I as I've said, uh, I think I, 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 when I mentioned it last week, it was more but it was more for internal Israeli consumption. You know, it got uh, plaudits from the Biden administration and other administrations, and even uh, Abbas, who gave a speech, I believe, the day after. Most of the speech was its usual: Israel is terrible, Israel is apartheid, Israel. It gave a whole litany of history of Israeli massacres, quote unquote. Um, but he did credit Lapid with mentioning it. So, you know, there is some credit out there. Um, but I, my, my belief is it was primarily for internal purposes. Uh, there is no movement forward. There are no meetings between Lapid and Abbas. Interestingly enough, Abbas called two people to wish them uh, Shana Tova, the, you know, the traditional uh, uh, greeting for the Jewish New Year. He called Israeli President uh, Herzog and he called Defence Minister Gantz. Uh, I did not see any mention of a call to Prime Minister Lapid. So, you know, if they're not even able to give each other greetings at this point, there are no negotiations. There's no even talk of negotiations. Um, so the issue really just simply isn't on the table, regardless of whether it's mentioned at a UN speech. Thank you. Carrie Hillebrand asked, if two states for two peoples in some form is not an ultimate goal, how will Israel prevent Jews from becoming a minority in the land? And you mentioned that you could expand upon the two states for two people. Uh, could you? Yes. Well, I can tell you one thing. I was in a, a meeting at the UN many years ago with the deputy foreign minister. And every year at the UN, there is a meeting of the donors conference where the whole international community talks about how much it's going to give the Palestinian community. Uh, rarely they give what they said that they are, especially in the Arab world. But usually there's a communique, a press release, a joint one that comes out from the Israeli and Palestinian teams. And we were sitting with Salam Fayyad, who was the moderate uh, prime minister, Palestinian prime minister at the time. And uh, in the communique, which I was involved with, was written two states for two people. He refused to sign it as long as it said and uh, for two peoples. He said two states I'm fine with, not for two peoples. And the point is there, well, what are we talking about? What the what the, the greatest fear is in Israel is yes, they'll sign on to put two, two state uh, two state solution, but essentially they'll continue to uh, they'll take one state, the Palestinian state, and they'll continue to work against uh, the the the, towards the end of the other state. They won't recognize it as a Jewish state. Abbas has said it many times. So who are these two peoples? So it's it's very problematic for the Palestinians and you'll never see a Palestinian leader ever use that terminology. Um, as far as the problem with the Jewish uh, uh, majority, minority, I, I, I always say one thing, um, you know, that there's a lot of uh, supporters of the status quo and other people who say, well, if you, if you leave it the way it is with the Arab birth rates, the Jews are going to be a minority between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River uh, within a certain amount of time, if not already. But the point is, first of all, Gaza has already basically been given over to the Palestinians. It's not part of sovereign Israel. Israel has no sovereignty there. It's given it away. And the second thing is there is no history precedent or international tool to force Israel, uh, Israeli sovereignty over the over the Green Line into Judea and Samaria and the West Bank, which means that regardless of what, if the Palestinians tomorrow decided we're not going to be pushing for Palestinian states, tomorrow we want to have uh, equal rights, we want to have citizenship, Israel will not give it because that means that they would, uh, they would annex the territory and they know annex annexing the territory would be 
a demographic problem. Uh, and that's why no government, right wing, left wing, whatever it is, has ever even really seriously attempted to do it because they know inherently the problems. So there is no real rush uh, to do this for demographic problems because there is nothing, there's no possible way the international community could say to Israel, okay, annex uh, the West Bank, Judea and Samaria and give everybody their citizenship. It just simply, there is, there is no precedent anywhere in the world. There are precedents for taking territory away. We, we look at the former Yugoslavia and, and many other places, but there's never been a situation where the international community rules that uh, a territory is now part of another country against its will. So I, I've always found it's a little bit of a weak argument, um, but uh, you know this is something that will keep on coming up, especially as I would say the majority of the Israelis are sitting somewhere in the middle. They're not for necessarily a two-state solution at this point, and they're certainly not for annexation. They're more for the uh, current status quo, if anything. All right, and in our last minute here, let's shift gears just a bit. Jack Wasserman asks, does any party have a position regarding Lebanon and their upcoming presidential election? What are the implications of Arafat's nephew replacing Abbas when he finally dies? Uh, parliamentary elections, first of all, I should say. Second of all, no, Lebanon isn't an, uh, really an issue. I mean, it's it's an issue for the Israeli government. It's only an issue over the maritime uh, border discussions and certainly the security uh, establishment is very worried about what's going on there, especially with the you know the 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 unrest and the economic uncertainty. But it's not an it's not a major issue for any party uh, that I've I've seen on the political map. And and even if it was, like, what would their policies be? You know, no one's talking about re-entering Lebanon. No one's talking about annexing territory. Certainly, you know, many of the parties on the right will be saying we should have a you know a harder we we should deal harder with our enemies in general, but I don't think anyone uh, would focus uh, any of their major campaign manifestos on Lebanon. All right. Thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar and podcast, Ashley. Thank you again for taking time to update us this week. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Zudi Jasser discussing Islamist First Muslim Reformists, how the battle has evolved. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.